There's a cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 14th of July 2010. Now for newcomers, look into my site cuttingthroughthematrix.com. You'll see a whole bunch of sites listed there. These are the official sites. If anything goes wrong with the com, you can always download the latest shows from the alternate sites. If you find sticking on the com when you're downloading, try these alternate sites for that reason too. Now, all those sites carry a lot of, uh, they all carry the same audios. Uh, They they all carry a lot of transcripts in English of the shows I've done for print-up. And if you want uh, transcripts in other languages, go into Alan Watt Sentient, sentinel.eu, and you'll find a whole bunch to choose from. And remember, too, to go into the, the books for sale and the CDs and discs I have for sale. There's not a lot there because I don't have time to do much at all in that line. I'm, I'm too busy doing so many things here. But uh, that keeps me going. The ads on this show that you hear are paid by advertisers straight to RBN which covers this airtime and pays their staff for equipment and their bills. So you have to help me with mine. And it's up to you if you like this, this show and you want to keep it going, where we go higher and deeper and we've changed the course of Patriot Radio, in fact, over many years, then you must support me too. And uh, remember, from the U.S. to Canada, you can purchase the, purchase the books by personal check. That's okay. So is an international postal order from your post office. Uh, MoneyGram, Western Union, some people send cash. Same across the rest of the world. You can uh, use all of those methods. Plus, you can also use PayPal from anywhere to donate or to purchase. If you want to purchase books by PayPal, send the donation by PayPal in a separate email with your name, address, and the order, and I'll get it out to you. That's how it's done. And, And believe you me, I do just trickle over here. There's no staff to flash things up on the screen for me and so on, or go and get things. It's a one-man band. So we go into all areas, really, as I say, that, that, that cover the big picture of the New World Order uh, and a lot of its history to show you that nothing happens by chance in the time that you're living, in the actual lifespan that you live, nothing on a major scale happens by chance or comes out of the blue as some kind of political proposal by whomever and whatever party. Uh, Things are planned way above politics. In fact, most of it comes way above even the top international corporations. Although the corporations are definitely above politics, they tell the politicians what to do, and politicians, in fact, have to go as soon as they get into office, since they know nothing about politics in the first place, they're generally hack lawyers up their eyes in debt. Uh, they go right to the specialists in certain areas, and these are outside of government areas. These are all private firms like the Rand Corporation. All you have to do is own the Rand Corporation, and you can influence the world and all the other corporations that deal in specialized areas. That's how the world is really run, and it has been for an awful long time. It's those guys who came up with all of the ideas 
of a global society, what kind of society it would be, how they prepare our minds for this society, and how they would alter the cultures, and how you would have basically a multicultural society where no one marries eventually. No one, even with the ethnic groups too, after a generation or so, they don't marry either. They're, they're right into the same system. A system that philosophers talked about for thousands of years, as Plato talked about it too, in his book, The Republic. The perfectly ordered, eugenically con- controlled society, where everyone shares all women in common. We now call it problem promiscuity, but it's here. You didn't think that's what it was, did you? Back with more after these messages. Hi, I am Alan Watt. We're cutting through the Matrix. And the Matrix is this big system in which we're born and uh, it is pre-existent, of course, for every generation. Uh, we don't plan it. We're born into it, and we're told to adopt it and accept it, and we're given whatever norms we're given at that time. And the culture, industry, the education system, all these things work together to create a form of reality for us, for our time only, because there's always a purpose behind that which they give you. It can be temporary because they've always got another step to go after that and so on, until they they end up their ideal uh, society, very obedient, of course, society. In the meantime, they have demonstrations and, and groups demanding various things. That's all permitted to an extent. And it's really irrelevant because the big boys have never really listened to the crowds anyway. And they're certainly not listening to them today. And the crowds really think they're going to demand something and get it because they think they believe that they're living in a democracy. They haven't learned yet that they're not in a democracy. The term is a cover. It's always been used as a cover. And uh, they've got away with it awfully well up until this present time. Many authors, including Quigley, talks about the fact that the parties um, give a, a mouthing of, uh, of difference. That's what, in other words, what comes from their mouth is what makes you think that this is right wing and this is left wing. And you don't watch what they do. And he says in both parties are following the identical same route. And that's what we have today. One leaves, one takes over, same things carry on as before. What they say is completely different, but it's what they do that matters, not what they say. You know, big players, and I've mentioned all this before, it's good to see that lots of other uh, people are using this information now that was never used before. Um, and I've really mentioned these guys over the years, like Bertrand Russell and so on, the guys who really were a big part of the top think tanks that helped design this particular phase that we're living in today and what's to come even. And he was Lord Bertrand Russell. He was a third or fourth generation peer of the realm. And uh, in 1952, uh, he, he wrote a book. It was called The Impact of Science on Society. And he talked about really how this scientific um, system or revolution, they often called it, would come into play. And he said, I think the subject which will be of most importance politically is mass psychology. And everyone out there who's listening right now will think, I'm me, I know who I am. 
But you know, most of your beliefs, most of what you like, and a lot of things that you do as well, are induced into you from a very early age. And then even with the crowd, the social coercion, you're induced into certain types of behavior. Uh, you'll even censor what you'll say on certain things and so on. That's what the counts on is, is the peer pressure that you're, you're in, being a social creature. So he says, I think the subject of most importance is mass psychology. Mass psychology is, scientifically speaking, not a very advanced study. That was back then. And that's a lie, too, because he, was, he had access to really amazing stuff. He says, this study is immensely useful to practical men, whether they wish to become rich or to acquire the government, to acquire the government. Believe you me, the government was acquired long before he came along. It is, of course, as a, uh, as a science founded upon individual psychology, but hitherto it has employed rule of thumb methods which are based on, upon a kind of intuitive common sense. Its importance has been enormously increased by the growth of modern methods of propaganda. And I've gone through Bernays and stuff, and it's, again, too, it's great to see lots of folk using the stuff on Bernays. It says, of these, the most influential is what we call, it's called education. Most of us don't, don't realize education is social engineering and it's propaganda. Religion also plays a part, though a diminishing one. The press, the cinema, the movies, and the radio play an increasing part. Well, it certainly has up till now, hasn't it? What is essential, he says, in mass psychology is the art of persuasion. If you could compare a speech of Hitler with a speech of, say, Edmund Burke, Edmund Burke, of course, was going on during the, the American uh, War of Independence in Britain. He says, you will see what uh, strides have been made in the art since the 18th century. What went wrong formally with Burke was that people had read in books that man is a rational animal and framed their arguments on this hypothesis, right? So you, you, I'll use reason and facts and so on and, and try to get through to them. He says, we now know that limelight's Limelight, okay, and a brass band do more to persuade than can be done by the most elegant trainer of syllogisms. It may be a hope that in time anybody will be able to persuade anybody of anything if he can catch the patient young and is provided by the state with money and equipment. Well, all that's been proven correct by Skinner because behaviorism is a study of, of really mass crowds or groups of people over and over and over again, giving them the stimuli, seeing how they react, and, and proving this will work every time. So, so mass psychology is far easier to, and dependable than, than individual psychology. And that's what they're using today, you see. Now, this ties in with this, this kind of base story here. I'll, I'll say base like to get to the bottom of it. I'll call it base. But anyway... It says here, and this is from the Mail Online, it's got a bit of humor there in a sense, but it says shopping center bosses approve Asian squat toilets following cultural awareness course. Now, what's a cultural awareness course? It's an indoctrination course, you see, to get you to change your views and your opinions and, again, to use the, the, uh, the peer pressure of those in the group who, and they always get that one or two will buckle first, the rest of them follow on. No one wants to be left out, especially when you're, you think you're in a managerial position. And it's from uh, the Mail Online, 14th of July, 2010. For centuries, the great British loo, that's a toilet, has been a matter of envy to the rest of the world, thanks to the efforts of pioneers like the legendary 
Thomas Crapper, we have long since led the world in comfort and hygiene. Now, however, that could be about to change. For most of us, the squat toilet is nothing more than a staple of horror stories about old-fashioned French service stations or the exploits of adventurous backpackers in the far-flung parts of India. But this basic form of plumbing, also known as a Turkish toilet or Nile pan, could be coming to a shopping centre near you, and all in the name of cultural sensitivity. From next week, shoppers in Rochdale who open the cubicle door expecting the reassuring sight of a modern clean lavatory could instead be faced with little more than a hole in the ground. Boy, that's austerity right enough, eh? They're cutting back. Bosses of the Greater Manchester's Town Exchange Mall have installed two as part of an upgrade costing several thousand pounds. How can you get several thousand pounds for a hole in the ground? After attending a cultural awareness course run by local Muslim community activists, a familiar sight in parts of the Middle East and still sometimes seen in France and Italy, the toilets require users to squat above them rather than sitting. Since one in ten of Rochdale's populations from Pakistan or Bangladeshi origin, centre managers say they've been told some members of the local Asian community prefer them for cultural reasons. And it goes on and on and on. So, see, that's done. Again, persuading first the managerial class. That's important. It doesn't matter about the people down below. That really doesn't. George Orwell was quite right in his book 1984 when he said, well, what about the proles, you know? And it was told constantly by uh, the managerial class, it says that uh, the proles don't count. You'll find the same thing in Carol Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope, and the Anglo-American Establishment. He said where the Royal Institute of International Affairs, who owned the media, the Council of Foreign Relations, owned the media. He said, we never cater to the bulk of the populace. We only cater to the ones who are in charge of the populace, a particular class and the areas of managerial expertise. Same thing here. So if you want to change society, go there first, and then the public have no option but to follow, you see, or, or wet their pants, you can see in this instance. So this is the sort of thing that's going on. It ties in, I see, with uh, what he said, um, what Russell said there that eventually anybody would be able to uh, convince anybody of anything if you have the right state backing, money, and so on. So mass persuasion is how you do it. He went on to say this too. He says, apart from the danger of war, I see no reason why such a regime, a scientific dictatorship, uh, should be unstable. After all, most civilized and semi-civilized countries known to history have had a large class of slaves or serfs completely subordinate to their owners. And that is true. Charles Galton Darwin, by the way, also said the same thing in his book, The Next Million Years, and he was also part of the planning uh, top high-level group uh, of of the time that uh, Russell was living in. And he said the same thing. He says, we are in the process of of creating a new, more sophisticated form of slavery. Most people don't realize that they are slaves. They don't realize it. They still think they're free because they've got a modicum of freedom to walk from here to there and do this and that. He says here, there's nothing in human nature that makes the persistence of such a system impossible. And the whole development of scientific technique has made it easier than it used to to maintain a despotic rule over or off a minority. When the government controls the distribution of food, now it's very important this, because they knew this was all coming up, it's all planned. 
When the government controls the distribution of food, its power is absolute so long as it can count on the police. And you've watched the build-up of them like an army inside your country for the last 25 years. And the armed forces. And their loyalty can be secured by giving them some of the privileges of the governing class. I do not see how any internal movement of revolt can ever bring freedom to the oppressed in a modern scientific dictatorship. So, what you're living through, as I say today, was planned an awful long time ago. It takes a little while, you see, to to alter the cultures of the people to accept and accept and accept. And you never rush it. You, you bring down the right things at the right times. You You go into... Iran at the right time, you'll go into Afghanistan at the right time, and so on. Everything's timed like a business plan. And they use computers to set up how the public will accept this back after this. Hi folks, this is Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix talking about the scientific dictatorship and how it ties in with what, where we are today. Most folk don't know they're under it, but they are. In fact, they're helping it and they're using a lot of the gizmos and gadgets. They're putting them in a straitjacket for what's coming up in the near future. They, we help. Uh, I've always said this. We buy the, the, the chains that bind us and keep us in prison. We buy them. If they mandated half the things that you have today that you enjoy now, all your electric gadgets, if they mandated that you must have this by law, uh, then you, you might be suspicious. But if they say, here, look at the fun you'll have on this, and here's the price, you go and buy it. You still think it's yours. That's why they give it names like personal and stuff like that. But getting back again to, to um, Bertrand Russell, he said, it's to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have, even in totalitarian countries. Fichte laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will, so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout their, the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Diet injections and injunctions will combine from a very early age to, to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. Even if all are miserable, all will believe themselves happy because the government will tell them that they are so. Well, you know, that's almost all here. The diets, the injections, injunctions... And, this, and the indoctrinations, that's all here already. We're the, probably the sickest uh, generation, and we get sicker with each subsequent generation. Most folk are going downhill quickly after the age of 30, and sometimes even earlier in some cases, never mind all the, the massive drop in IQ. You know, they lowered the, the, the world standards for IQ tests. IQ is something you're born with, not something you're taught. And therefore, if it drops a few points and they make that the new norm, something has happened to the old brain box. Diet injunctions and injections, he said. Eh? Your food and injections with injunctions. It says, it says here too, 
unless there is a world government. Now, they knew that, again, being a member of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, he took part in the big think tanks. He knew the Milner Group that had really started the ball rolling towards world government, set up the League of Nations, then uh, changed their name into the Royal Institute for International Affairs and created the United Nations. Unless there is a world government which secures individual birth control, there must be from time to time great wars in which the penalty of defeat is widespread death by starvation. That is exactly the present state of the world. That's back then he's talking about. And some may hold that there is no reason why it should not continue for centuries. I do not believe that this is possible. The two great wars that we have experienced have lowered the level of civilization in many parts of the world. And the next is pretty sure to achieve much more in this direction. Unless at some stage one power or group of powers emerges victorious and proceeds to establish a single government of the world with a monopoly of armed force, it is clear that the level of civilization must continually decline until scientific warfare becomes impossible. That is, until science is extinct. And of course, he actually led um, the anti-nuclear war for the radical group while he was working for MI5, by the way, um, and that was a committee of 100, it was called, in one of the, the, the memoirs uh, about him, one of his books. Uh, Russell explains that the eugenics policy, it says, it, says, uh, it says this, in fact, gradually by selective breeding, this is the, the, the good part really because he, really get, he gets off on this, selective breeding, the congenital differences between rulers and ruled, will increase until they become almost different species. Now, for the harder thinking, I'll say that again. Gradually, by selective breeding, that's what all this eugenics is about right now, has been going on for years amongst his own class. The congenital difference between rulers and ruled will increase until they become almost different species. A revolt of the plebes would become as unthinkable as an organized insurrection of sheep against the practice of eating mutton. So, you know, Huxley, these guys all knew each other. They all worked in the same top think tanks. And uh, it was beautiful how they wrote their books because some people will love their books, reading it on one level. But when they read it, they read it on a different level. They have to tone it down a little bit for the general public. In the past, this is, this is what um, Huxley said uh, when he was at Berkeley. Uh, giving you a lecture. It says, In the past we can say that all revolutions have essentially aimed at changing the environment in order to change the individual. There's been the political revolution, the economic revolution, the religious revolution. All these aimed, I say, not directly at human beings, but at his surroundings. So by modifying his surroundings, you did achieve, at one remove, an effect upon the human being. Remember what Skinner said, if you want to change the behavior of people... You change something in their environment. You give them a television, you give them a cell phone, whatever it is, or a computer, or games. You change their behavior. Even the radio changed behavior. That's why they started the series that you tune into every day to hear how it ended, back after these messages.
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, I'm back again I think. Uh, we got cut off once again. Something in between seems to have a habit of dropping whenever I come on and start blabbing on about things which I guess most folk would want to hear. But I'm talking about uh, Aldo Huxley now, and he mentioned about revolutions in the past and how it changed behavior and so on and changed the surroundings, which ultimately change your behavior. It says, today we're faced, I think, with the approach of what may be called the ultimate revolution, the final revolution where man can act directly on the mind-body of his fellows. Well, needless to say, some kind of direct action on human mind bodies has been going on since the beginning of time, but this has generally been of a violent nature. The techniques of terrorism have been known for time immemorial, and people have employed them with more or less ingenuity, sometimes with utmost crudity, sometimes with a good deal of skill acquired with a practice, a process of trial and error, finding out what the best ways of using torture, imprisonments, constraints of various kinds. If you're going to control any population for any length of time, you must have some measure of consent. Very important, this consent business. It's extremely, exceedingly difficult to see how pure terrorism can function indefinitely. It can function for a fairly long time, but sooner or later you're going to have to bring in an element of persuasion, an element of getting people to consent to what is happening to them. He's talking about terrorism basically uh, running your government. And that's what we're under. It's a war of terror. That's why they're using this since 2001. It was designed on a very high level through international meetings, top level of meetings, to make sure that every country went into action on it at the same time, which they did with the same rules and laws, etc. It says, well, it seems to me the nature of the ultimate revolution with which we are now faced is precisely this, that we are in process of developing a whole series of techniques which will enable the controlling oligarchy who have always existed and will presumably always exist to get people to love their servitude. This is the ultimate and malevolent revolution. It says there seems to be a general movement in the direction of this kind of ultimate control, this method of control by which people can be made to enjoy a state of affairs by which any decent standard they ought not to enjoy, the enjoyment of servitude and squatting in holes in the ground, I could add to that too. So, he goes on and on and on about this and, and how they're, they're changing society, the, the techniques that they use to get to work on people, and how the, 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 see, all you have to do is get it to work on, again, the managerial class and manufacturers who implement different things into society. Don't make it this way, make it in this shape, this color, and all that kind of stuff. And then the magazines go into, into play to advertise them and promote them for their own class first, for the, all the builders and creators of these things. And then they give you, in other words, you have no choice at the bottom at all. You think you have choices, but you don't realize there's a whole bunch of um, coercion from a higher level, even on the manufacturers of those products, to make certain things in a certain way. Right down, of course, to how long they're even going to last. 
It says here too, I'm inclined to think that the scientific dictatorships of the future, and I think these are going to be scientific dictatorships in many parts of the world, will be probably a good deal nearer to Brave New World pattern than to the 1984 pattern. I don't really think so. I think they use both in tandem at this point. That's why you've got the War of Terror and, and police with machine guns and stuff. It's all to make us terrified and consent to having no freedoms. That was the first thing they asked us on television after 9-11 was, will you give up your, 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 your free freedoms for security? They, get, they were wanting your consent to be ruled by guys with machine guns. So it says uh, they will be a good deal nearer, not because of any humanitarian qualms in the scientific dictators, but simply because the Brave New World pattern is probably a good deal more efficient than the other. That if you can get people to consent to the state of affairs in which they are living, the state of servitude, if you can do this, then you are likely to have a much more stable, a much more lasting society, much more easily controllable society than you would if you were relying wholly on clubs and firing squads and concentration camps, and on and on it goes. But you've got to get the book and for yourself, and also get Russell's various books too, to show you what I'm, I'm really talking about, because it's very, very important. You realize that the kind of world you're living in and have been living in for an awful long time. In fact, your parents were going through their part of the conditioning process and preparation for their lifetime and what they would find happening in their world during their lifetime, as you are too. And they started off now at kindergarten, preparing you with new ideals, new ways of seeing things, being politically correct on certain topics, and how to even ostracize someone who's a different point of view than you do. The group is very powerful for that. They count on the group persuasion. So, there's so much more to it, as I say, than than what people think. You know, I could go on every day about articles in the newspapers and scream and yell and say, look what they're doing to us today and, and give you another bunch tomorrow. But as I said yesterday, these are side effects of the actual main agenda hitting you or hitting someone we're reading about or hearing about or whatever. These are side effects as we go through this brave new world scenario. You've got to understand what's behind it. And personally, I don't see even... The, I'm, this is me personally. I see things from different levels and different ways and different angles than other people. When I see people really demonstrating, and I keep thinking of the, the, the painting, the primal scream, because it's like people with all kinds of groans and aches, things that are hurting them, that they can't really voice themselves. And that's why they're there, regardless of the posters that they have up. These are all the effects of living in an artificial society that's in fast flux, fast movement towards something, which they have no part of. They have no part of the decision-making whatsoever. And... We really don't. We've been out of the picture for generations, many generations, as far as decision-making goes. So people really are, are, are really voicing, um, again, it's like um, Bernays said, about unconscious desires and motivations. That's how advertising works on us. But it's also why we demonstrate and why we're angry and we pick certain targets and so on. We feel powerless, technically. 
and it comes out in different ways, symptoms and signs. Because really, deep down, people are afraid to come to the conclusion that something awfully big runs this world. And even the names they get in the papers of the big corporations, of the big think tanks, the RAND corporations, and all the hundreds and hundreds of specialized areas that government uh, farms out their work to, are run on a higher level yet to make sure that it all works in the right direction. Not difficult today with communication. It's not difficult either for a few incredibly rich people to be the top of the pyramid and making sure that all the layers of bureaucracies below them, non-governmental bureaucracies, are all on board running the right things in the right direction at the same time. It's not difficult at all. Standardization and centralization is so important to all of this. That's why Marx favored this system. Centralization of power. Central government, central police force, central army, central education system for indoctrination. And it all comes to uh, the global society too, from, from the United Nations Educational Society, UNESCO. So the whole world gets the same propaganda at the same time. Beria talked about this in 1934 in the Soviet Union to the Comintern meetings, the guys who went to the Communist Internationals from different countries to attend the meetings. He said it used to take a generation to change the behavior of society in even one little direction, one area. He said now with scientific indoctrination and education, we can upgrade them basically every four years. And he says eventually it will be be quicker, faster, because they were understanding the techniques quicker and faster too. The education system in the Soviet Union was, was run at the top by Pavlov. And he used the same techniques he used on the animals to teach children. It's interesting that Eleanor Roosevelt, when she went over there, uh, the first person she wanted to see was her hero, she said, was, and that was Pavlov, Dr. Pavlov. And she said, she made a comment in her own book, and she said, um, she noticed the school children on their way to school were vastly different from American children. No spontaneity. They weren't tagging each other, chasing each other, and so on, playing and laughing. But she says they were so orderly and so well-behaved, she was very impressed. She loved feet as well. She was a control freak. And H.G. Wells left his son with Pavlov when he went over there to get trained. His son eventually became a zoologist, I believe, and taught in New York. But this is what runs the world. And the richest people in the world have the specialists in these areas under their thumb, working for them on a vast, massive scale. And covering education, covering advertising, covering the movies and entertainment industries, because that also is a big part of your indoctrination, even into political correctness. You'll see it all, and all the time you see political correct things in the, in the movies. The latest upgrade. And when it's put into your head via emotion, you'll feel guilty for having a thought that's now politically incorrect. It's implanted with emotion. It's, 
is fixed in your mind, your brain. Now, now there's an article too. I'll just finish up with maybe. We'll see how much time I've got. An hour isn't long at all, especially when we keep getting cut off. But um, this is from John Pilger. And he's talking about the Pentagon and the media. And uh, it says here in his latest column for the New Statesman, John Pilger describes how an all-pervasive corporate media culture in the United States prepares the way for a permanent state of war. And yet for all the column inches and broadcast hours filled, their brainwashing is not succeeding. And this, he suggests, is America's greatest virtue. Then he gives you a story about uh, what you see on television and so on, and, and a guy getting executed, and then goes into the advertising that's all bizarre. And then it's back to the execution again. And then there's a reality show where a camera's watching a man serving solitary confinement in a prison's hellhole. Then he talks about arriving in the Pentagon the next morning for an interview with one of the President Obama's senior war-making officials. There's a long walk along shiny corridors hung with pictures of generals and admirals festooned in ribbons. And then he talks about the purpose-built interview room for, for journalists. It's, it's blue and arctic cold, windowless and featureless except for a flag and two chairs, which are props to create the illusion of a place of authority. This is the last time he was in a room like this. Um, in the Pentagon, a colonel called Hum stopped my interview with another war-making official when I asked why so many innocent civilians were being killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Then it was in the thousands, now it is in more than a million. Stop tape, he ordered. This time there was no Colonel Hum, merely a polite dismissal of soldiers' testimony that it was a common occurrence that troops were ordered to kill every mother effer. You know what that is, of course, it's through Hollywood you get to learn these things. The Pentagon says the Associated Press spends $4.7 billion on public relations. $4.7 billion your tax money just on propagandizing you through the media. He said that is winning the hearts and minds, not of recalcitrant Afghan tribesmen, but of Americans. This is known as information dominance. Information dominance in the U.S. right now is costing $4.7 billion of your tax money to brainwash you into disinformation. Information dominance. And PR people... Plus propaganda are information warriors. Now, I've read that before. That's what they're calling them in PSYOPs and so on. They've changed the name of PSYOPs too, by the way. American imperial power flows through a media culture to which the world imperial is an anathema to broach it as heresy. Colonel campaigns are really wars, or colonial campaigns are really wars of perception, wrote the President Commander General David Petraeus, in which the media popularizes the terms and conditions. Narrative is a credited word because it is postmodern and bereft of context and truth. The narrative of Iraq is that the war is won, and the narrative of Afghanistan is that it is a good war. That is neither true and beside the points. They promote a grand narrative of a constant threat and the need for permanent war. We are living in a world of cascading and intertwined threats, wrote, wrote the celebrated New York Times columnist, um, and it says here, oh yeah, who was it? Thomas Friedman, um, and intertwined threats, wrote the celebrated, yeah, Times Friedman, Thomas Friedman, that have the potential to turn our country upside down at any moment. Friedman supports an attack on Iran whose independence is intolerable. 
This is the psychopathic vanity of great power, which Martin Luther King described as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. He was then shot dead. The psychopathic is applauded across popular corporate culture from the TV death watch of a man choosing a firing squad over lethal injection to the Oscar-winning Hurt Locker and a new acclaimed war documentary, Restrepo. Directors of both films deny and dignify the violence of invasion as apolitical, and yet behind the cartoon facade is serious purpose. The U.S. has emerged militarily in 75 countries. 75 countries. There are some 900 U.S. military bases across the world, many at at the gateways to the, the sources of fossil fuels. 900 military bases, and they're building more. But there's a problem. Most Americans are opposed to these wars and to the billions of dollars spent on them. That their brainwashing so often fails is America's greatest virtue. This is frequently due to courageous mavericks, uh, especially those who emerge from the centrifuge of power. In 1971, military analyst Daniel Ellsberg leaked documents known as the Pentagon Papers, which put the lie to almost everything two presidents had claimed about Vietnam. Many of these insiders are not even renegades. I have a, a, a selection or a section in my address books filled with the names of former officers of the CIA who've spoken out. They have no equivalent in Britain, because in Britain, you see, they kill them like Kelly back after this. the matrix. Just going through a couple of articles after reading a bit of Russell and Huxley and The Brave New World, which we're really well into and most don't even realize it. This is another article here on, again, the posturing, the show, the show in politics is very good in Britain. It's It's a better show than anywhere else. And there are no legitimate parties in Britain that are real at all, to be honest with you. And they've got left-wing and right-wing, and the people keep falling into the camps and, and all the rest of it. And they never learn and never will learn. But they're so conditioned into it. There's an article here, though, of the posturing that's going on right now uh, with the, the new government uh, that's just the same as any other government that's been in before them. And they'll find that out down the road, of course. But they're saying the right things. They always say things, but it's what they do. When they do things, that's when you really say, okay, they they actually did something they said they might do. 14th of July, and this is from Mail Online, it says, Ken Clark last night warned that Britain had drifted towards an elective dictatorship during Labour's years in power. Well, of course it was, because you have to see who taught uh, Tony Blair, his, his great mentor. Uh, who wrote a, a book about how to control vast populations uh, and how to give them uh, different kinds of freedom, positive or negative freedom. And that was in as Isaiah Berlin. Now, it says here, uh, so you elective dictatorship. You elect a dictatorship. Again, that's your consent, you see. The Justice Secretary said there was also a need to return greater powers to Parliament, but he's not saying they're doing it, you see. <laughs> That Labour, which is a left-wing, large, which has been involved in most of the wars they've ever had, uh, majorities allowed it to pass a raft of invasive legislation without any meaningful debate, Mr. Clark said. This must now be reversed. Now, will they do it? Wait and see. 
He added, we have seen a steady drift towards authoritarianism in recent years. Really, a steady, uh, recent years? Always a weakness of the left, in my biased opinion, that's what he says. And he, they play this left way. It's like a tennis ball. Politics is a tennis ball in the tennis court going back and forth, and the public pick the side that they want to believe they're on. Over 30 years ago, Lord Hailsham famously voiced his concern about the elective dictatorship under which he feared we might live. I do not doubt his anxiety would be far, far greater today. It's the most observed, the public are the most observed and spied on public in the planet. The whole planet, more so than any Soviet Union ever was. And it says the executive has grown much, but more powerful, and parliament and its ability to hold the executive to account has grown ever weaker. And with this drift, the state has accrued more intrusive and more invasive powers. Well, the public's been saying that for years. We disregard this at our peril. Under the new government, Parliament must be returned to its rightful place as a centre of public debate. How can it be when it's already signed itself into the economic union? It's now a province of Europe. And they do what they're told from Europe or else. Look at all the fines they've paid to the European Parliament for for supposed, uh, they're not flying their flag, for instance, millions and millions of pounds. Forgetting they fly their, their rag in the air. So this is posturing for the public, but they do give you the, the, the legal truths here and there about elective dictatorship. That's what you have. Doesn't matter who you're voting in, you're an elective dictatorship. Someone actually asked me about how do you think about freedom for Scotland, independence and so on, and same with Ireland. Well, what's the point if they're fighting for all these years and, and then you get it only to wake up, you're already been, been included in the EU parliament. You're under them, a bigger, more powerful tyrant. It's all managed that way. From Hamish and myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you. <laughs>